Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast, one in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. Between 2008 and 2012, the war between the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels had claimed the lives of about 5,000 people in Ciudad Juarez. After new crime fighting and economic programs were rolled out in Chihuahua, or as many residents will tell you, after the army left the city, violence in Ciudad Juarez started to fall, and it kept falling. In 2008, There had been nearly 3,800 murders in Juarez. By 2015, there were about 300. Car thefts, extortions, kidnappings, and other crimes were also down. Historian Juan de Dios. An important part of Ciudad Juarez has also been its resilience. For every violent cycle that has occurred throughout its history, there has also been a cycle of reconstruction. It builds itself. In 2013, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, officially inherited Juarez Mantel as the most dangerous city in the world. For more than a decade, headlines about the femicide in Juarez, the arrest of Sharif, the cotton field murders, and the disappearance and deaths of thousands of other women had been a mainstay of the city's La Nota Roja newspapers, the name for the press beat that covers grisly acts of violence in Mexico, from which this podcast takes its name. In the aftermath of the war, the two-decades-old story of the femicides in Juarez had become old news. Business and political leaders already avoided the subject out of fear it would tarnish the city's image. With few new leads in the investigation and no meaningful convictions, the press was more interested in writing about the body count from Mexico's drug war. Women and girls were left behind in history 
again. But in Juarez, there were still thousands of families trying to heal their scars from the war without daughters, mothers, and wives. And for these families, it was impossible to move on. José Luis Castillo is a lifelong resident of Ciudad Juárez. My daughter went missing in 2009. At the high point of disappearances here in Juárez, when unfortunately you would paste a poster on a pole and people wouldn't even look at it anymore. They would just say, and yet another. We'd say, how do we get them to look at Esmeralda's picture? How? What can we do to get them to look at the picture? It's not that I didn't care about the other girls. It's not that the other girls didn't hurt me. But my focus is my daughter. She's my daughter. I'm not saying don't look for the others. But like every father, well, I want mine. This is episode 10 of The Red Note. The pain that cannot forget. My name is Lydia Cacho. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Because of poor record-keeping by Mexican officials, it is impossible to say how many women were killed or disappeared since the start of the femicide in Juarez. More than two decades after the first remains were found in the desert, most of the forensic evidence in these cases had been lost or contaminated. For many families, it seemed like there was little hope that the killers or abductors 
would ever be brought to justice. And yet, they kept on fighting. Ten years after the murder of Lili Alejandra Garcia, Norma Andrade filed a lawsuit on behalf of her daughter against the Mexican state. It was later accepted by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Working with mothers like her, Norma formed an organization designed to provide families of femicide victims with the kind of support that she had been denied by the authorities. We formed an organization at that time called May Our Daughters Return Home, which was not even an organization. We were a bunch of moms who were twinned by the same pain, who were united by the same struggle to demand justice together. The pain we've been carrying on our shoulders, which is a pain that never ends, which is a continuous pain, it ties you to another family. And at some point, they become our chosen family. We would hear that a girl had been murdered, and we would be with the family at the funeral, with a mother whose daughter had gone missing. And it's not because we were a collective or something. Everyone came on their own to tell the mom, here we are and we're going to help you hand out flyers. It is difficult to approach a family in the same situation as you because of the pain that the family is in. But really going out and shouting and calling out on the government? Oh, I love it. It's like a therapy where I get it all out. We draw it out from our own rage, from the same feeling of powerlessness we have inside. We've already realized that one person is not going to achieve anything, that only together, only by coming together as a society, as families, as victims, we'll get the government to listen to us. After the deaths of her daughter and her husband, Norma was raising Lili Alejandra's two children, Hade and Caleb. In the fall of 2011, After years working as an activist, Norma began receiving death threats. Hade was planning to travel to downtown Juarez around that time to complete a school assignment. I said, no, how could I let her go downtown by herself? No, that's where we've lost many girls. So I asked to leave my job in the morning and went with her. I told Hade, come on, Hade because I'm going to work now. And when I left, I see a person at, at about 50 feet away. And I don't know, one of those people you see and, and, and I am weird that way. Because that person, I don't know, made me feel uneasy. So I see Jade, I see her walking and She goes to the driver's side, and then I turn around. He was standing there pointing the gun at me. So I see the gun, and I say, he wants to mug me. Then I give him my bag. You want the bag? Take it. I'm not going to argue with you for the money I have with me. He doesn't tell me anything at all. He just stares at me. So I tell him, oh, you want the truck? And I give him the keys. He didn't make a big deal about grabbing them either. Then, he shoots me. 
The first bullet went in my chest, and it lodged 10 degrees from my heart. In the second, I instinctively do this, because the pain was too strong, it was extremely unbearable, so it goes through me. The other three go through my shoulder, out my back, and they break the truck's window. A neighbor arrives and took me to a public hospital, to a clinic that was five minutes away from, and they didn't want to admit me. They said, we don't admit people with gunshots. He told them I was critical to get me in an ambulance. They said no. He then took me to another clinic. I stayed there until I must have arrived around 2 p.m. And I stay there until like 11 or 12 at night. And the government transferred me to a private hospital because it was already full of reporters outside and they were afraid that they would try to go for the kill, that they would realize I was alive and go back to finish it off. That was Friday. On Saturday, I had a surgery. I see the doctor on Monday, Monday morning. The doctor tells me, don't worry, you can stay here as long as you want. That was about 9 a.m. Around noon, they come and take my IV infusion. They take away my tube. They detach everything and they say, leave now, but leave. Just like that. I got kicked out. I had Alex's godmother with me. She was very upset and she told him, why are you kicking her out? Why are you kicking us out? Well, they made us leave. We're then escorted by a squad of federal agents and they take us to a hotel. They put me with two nurses in 12-hour shifts. I figure out why they took me out to the hotel like that. That morning, they had threatened the hospital saying that if they continued to care for me, they would kill the nurses. And the hospital then chose to kick me out. We had to go to several hotels, and none of them wanted to take me. Until the governor finally called the Camino Real, and they're the only ones who take me because the governor ordered properly. And they take me out themselves and bring me to the city. Fearing another attack, Norma left Juarez for good and moved to Mexico City's Coyoacan neighborhood in a house provided by the government. I had been living for 15 days in, in the house that the government rented. I was just dropping Kalev off at school. I was about to come in. I still had my hand in a sling and the immobilizer and a cast in my hand. All this because of the gunshots. I was going to open the door. I don't know what made me instinctively. I don't know what made me turn around. But the first thing I see is a knife. My mind immediately goes, oh no, not again, no. So I instinctively do this and hit him in the face. I was supposed to have both of them immobilized. He wasn't expecting the hit. We start to struggle. Stabs me once here. 
about two inches. And I, I kick him with my foot and we both fall down. And he stabs me in the cheek and the blade comes out of my cheek, out of my neck. With all the fighting and the screaming and everything, people were already coming out. So the man ran away. A gentleman arrives just to help me get up and everything, to get in the house, to call the ambulance. I told the governor that I didn't want to believe that it was him, that he sent someone to shut me up. But maybe he could have been the killer too, because he knew that of all the moms, of the girls that are known, the only one involved in activism was me. The only one shouting and saying that was me. So, where does it come from? We don't know. I say that I'm three normas. The norma, who was a grandmother and became a mom. And then she became an activist who was a mother demanding justice. Then another Norma was born after the attack. When I'm forced to move from Ciudad Juarez, I say that another Norma was born that starts hanging out with feminists to learn about feminism and about other kind of rights that I didn't know about. I believe that it takes both political and human will to solve the situation. We also need to get involved as a society and stop being so permissive and stop criticizing the victims by saying they were asking for it. They shouldn't wear such revealing clothes. It happened to me walking with my granddaughter. She was wearing a miniskirt. A lady passed by and pulled her skirt further down because she thought it was too short. <laughs> and had it turned around and was surprised because the last thing you'd expect is for a woman to pull down her skirt. It's those kind of attitudes that encourage what's going on. I believe that we as a society need to change that, to start seeing ourselves as women who deserve respect, who deserve to walk freely on the street, who deserve to be in the midst of a society where we're respected. Those freedoms, we should be able to have them because men have them. I think it's also our right to have them, and yet we don't. I and my fellow reporters We're working at this time to document how organized crime was not only fighting for territory to sell drugs and guns, but over human slavery too. It gave them the greatest source of revenue they had ever seen. With the extreme violence in Central America and the narco violence in Mexico, many women and girls were fleeing their hometowns, running away from death. Unknowingly, the smugglers or coyotes they hired to help them flee were no longer just small groups of people interested in making illegal money by getting people across rivers, deserts, or bridges. The big cartels had taken over these small-time operations and the women and girls became merchandise. 
I remember asking one convicted human trafficker how he had slaved and smuggled 20 16-year-old girls from Mexico and sold them to a brothel in New York. Easy, he said. Where there is a market demand, we'll look for the product. The border is a perfect place to look. Although violence was down in Juarez, east of the city is a 50-mile stretch of land known as the Valle de Juarez, still rife with homicides, kidnapping, abductions, and extortion. In 2012 and 2013, the bodies of roughly two dozen women were found in the Juarez Valley in an area known as Arroyos de Navajo. According to authorities, these women were victims of a criminal network that lured young women and girls with job offers, made threats against their families, and forced the victims into drug addiction and the sex industry, run by organized crime and maquiladora owners. One of the first victims found at Arroyos de Navajo was Dora Venser's daughter, Andrea Guerrero Venser, nicknamed Chiquis. I used to say that if something happened to one of my daughters, I would die or even go crazy. I told the investigation agents, I want my daughter to be found no matter what. I want to know about her. When they came to notify me that they found the remains, the lawyer told me, Mrs. Vensor, we have Andreita as our first point of reference. She was the first one we found, and thanks to Andreita, Andreita opened up ways for us to find the others. Did she? As if to tell me to feel happy, I said, I know, I know that my daughter is a big star. Several gang members were arrested and charged with the Arroyos de Navajo murders. In 2015, after a three-month trial, featuring testimony from 200 witnesses, an all-female three-judge panel found five of the six defendants guilty of femicide. They were the first convictions under Mexico's femicide law passed in 2007. The perpetrators were sentenced to nearly 700 years in prison each and were ordered to pay more than $50,000 in restitution to the families of the victims. This historic trial would not have been a reality without the strength of the network the mothers and feminist lawyers created during 20 years of femicides. But Blanca Carmona and other journalists who have studied the Arroyos de Navajo trial have cast doubts on the verdict. 
Three oral trials were conducted. We concluded that the prosecution used trained witnesses or false witnesses to prove the involvement of five people. By reviewing the files, we realized that some witnesses were in jail or were out of town when they claimed to have seen the young women being prostituted. We could tell that the victims were wearing, or their skeletal remains were next to, the clothes they were wearing when they disappeared. This, well, as reporters, make us doubt the hypotheses presented by the prosecution about them having been victims of prostitution for several months since they were wearing the same clothes in which they disappeared. There's also a witness who was called a star witness. He seemed to know the whole story. First, he identified some of the alleged perpetrators. Then he added more. Then he changed their alleged roles about four times. He gradually adapted his information to the facts, as if he had been instructed by the authorities. Oscar Minas was in charge of the forensic department in Juarez when the bodies of the Cottonfield victims were found in 2001. Years later, he was following the Arroyos de Navajo trial. It, it was funny because there was this uh, reporter from, uh, from Univision. She did a lot of work for the Cottonfield and a lot of investigation. And when the, the Arroyo del, del Navajo appeared, which uh, call, you know, this is worse and this, this is interesting. Eh? But she, she had moved on because now the focus is now in Juarez, probably in South America or whatever. So for them, it's, oh, oh yeah, it's interesting, but this is now, now, now we're focusing on this. And I, I can understand, but you know. But when the cotton field investigation was closed for political reasons, around that time I mentioned that this would cause another cotton field to happen, right? And Arroyo de Navajo already happened, which apparently is something much more serious. But there, the authority did control the information, the number of bodies, their characteristics. It's like the government learned from the cotton field, but learned how to do things wrong, right? Instead of learning and starting a serious, tidy investigation, they learn how to prevent information from leaking out, information that would have come to the media's attention, both international and national. Jose Luis Castillo's daughter, Esmeralda, who went missing in 2009, is also suspicious of the Arroyos de Navajo verdicts. That case is very unfortunate. They dared to call it the trial of the century and sentenced these people to over 500 years. I cannot say whether these men are innocent or guilty. What I am asking is, the scientific evidence, where is it? We believe that it won't take more than two years for this case to fall apart. Not because they are innocent or guilty simply because they are cobbling together. They are holding the file. They are holding the investigation artificially. In none of the cases did they find clothes 
there was no evidence that they collected or that were in custody. And in the absence of this, well, it's easy for the case to fall apart. This phenomenon, the disappearances here in Ciudad Juarez, has been happening since about 1995. Those of us from here, from Juarez, still remember first Sharif Sharif was arrested and Los Rebeldes were arrested for the bodies found in Lomas de Poleo. And they were released at the time because there was no evidence. Then young girls continued to disappear, kept showing up dead. The next administration came in and they arrested the drivers, Tolteca, Cerillo and and the others. One of them died in prison and the other was released, also as an innocent man. So it's not unusual for them to say they are guilty now and in a while they will just be released. And this administration will go back to catch other culprits later. The important thing is that the actual culprits are still free out there. And the message the authorities are sending to those who did it is, do whatever you want. I'm never going to arrest you. That's why there are protests. That's why we demand justice from the authorities. Because, well, the same thing keeps happening over and over, and we know who did it. Young girls keep disappearing, bodies keep showing up. And where are the guilty parties? A single bone from Esmeralda Castillo's leg was among the remains found at Arroyos de Navajo. Based on this one bone, authorities asked Mr. Castillo to accept that his daughter was dead. But José Luis Castillo insists that his daughter is alive. He has continued searching for her and continued protesting the government's failure to stop the femicides in Chihuahua. We have done or performed six tracking procedures in Arroyo del Navajo, finding 72 human bone remains. This search was done because the remains of my little girl Esmeralda were allegedly found in Arroyo del Navajo. They presume to have found a right tibia that was sent to the homicide department. When we went to identify the supposed tibia, we were shocked when they told us to take the tibia and to accept that Esmeralda is dead. They say Esmeralda's father is crazy, that he doesn't want to accept the fact that his daughter is dead. But how can I accept something if they don't give me scientific evidence that I should just take their word for it? How could I accept that? 
Hay veces there are times like any other human being that I get tired. But we still keep her room for her. And there's a picture of her, of my little girl. And when I almost want to throw in the towel, I walk into the room and my little girl is there facing me and it's like I'd hear her say, didn't you say you love me so much, my old man? Don't tell me you're tired already. And I go back into the fight. We go back to our struggle. We continue the search everywhere. It hurts all year long, but there are times that hurt more. When December comes, I see people walking around buying gifts for their children, for their grandchildren. Families get together. My wife and, no, sorry, my life partner, because sometimes that's one of those words, my wife. Wait a second, hold on, she's not yours or anything, you didn't buy her. She's your partner. My partner and I have to do things like, for example, avoid spending New Year's in my house. We go to the house of one of my children because when that had just happened to Esmeralda we still got together at my house but it was midnight and we would start crying and the party was ruined for my children and my grandchildren for everyone we realized that we do have a terrible pain but we don't have the right to take away other people's happiness that's why these parties, celebrations are done at my children's homes. When we're about to start crying, when everyone starts hugging each other, we say, son, I have to go. I feel tired already. So they can keep on enjoying and celebrating. It's hard to watch our children laugh, to see our grandchildren play, to see all the merriment when the family gets together and say, what about my Esmeralda? Where is she? And having to stay quiet despite wanting to scream, Esmeralda, where are you? Having to keep quiet and not saying anything because saying that would kill the joy of others. And who am I to kill the joy of my other children? From my other grandchildren? However, I thank them because in any action that was done for Esmeralda and for protests, for searches or to demand something and they come and tell me here I am, Grandpa. How can I help you, Grandpa? So all those things show me that they are here with us that I don't have to kill their joy. On the day I leave this world, I don't want for them to say that the day Esmeralda disappeared, they lost their grandfather. Their grandpa became sad. What I want my children to say is my grandfather was a great fighter of just causes. Nothing else. Not even that I was a good person or anything like that. I'll keep looking for our daughter and all the other daughters and we'll raise our voices for anyone 
whether it's a man or a woman, whenever necessary, we'll be there. I want to ask a favor. I know that this, that this thing you guys are doing, it's going to show in other places. I don't know where, but please, if anyone knows about my Esmeralda, if, if you've seen her or Esmeralda, if you happen to be watching this that we're filming right now, the only thing I can tell you, darling, is that we are waiting for you with our arms wide open. No matter what the circumstances, no matter how you are, no matter if you have children, no matter if you've become addicted to something, none of that matters, my love. Here's your old man, darling, who's waiting for you with his open arms and your whole family, too. Dora Venser. They say that a mother feels pain like that. Right away she feels it when, when something happened to her child who died, etc. But with Andrea, I haven't felt that way. Like if, I don't know, sometimes I'm still waiting for my daughter. I'm still waiting for her. I'm still waiting. But then I say... But, well, if DNA doesn't lie and those studies don't lie, that's where I say I don't feel anything, but I know that doesn't lie. When it gets dark and I go to bed, I say, my God, send me even just a second, my daughter, to tell me something. Or maybe it's because I ask a lot. I tell God... Send me my daughter in a dream. I want her to tell me what happened. Who did it? Why they did that to her? Maybe I'm asking too much, but that's why I don't dream about her. And sometimes I talk to her. I say, you know, darling, tell God wherever he has you. Tell him I don't want to be here anymore. Come and get me, my child. I don't feel tired, but I don't want to be sick, and I don't have any money to take care of myself. You know that. The children came in. They said, Grandma, who are you talking to? I say, no, darling, I'm alone. With Chiquis, I heard you, she said. But Chiquis doesn't hear you. The arrest of Sinaloa cartel leader Chapo Guzman in January 2016 sparked a new battle for control of the Juarez territory. After several years of relative peace, homicides in Juarez have been on the rise for the last four years. It's easy to miss the signs of instability as you drive around the city, but they are there if you know where to look. A man in sunglasses standing on a street corner, looking like he has nothing to do, serving as a lookout. Huge pickup trucks without license plates. A telling sign that the owner knows he has nothing to fear from the authorities. But as Ciudad Juarez moves forward into this uncertain future, 
a new generation of feminists, like the members of Hijas de su Maquilera Madre, have taken up the mantle of resistance handed to them by women like Norma Andrade. In the 90s, we saw mothers who would mainly go out on the streets demanding justice for their daughters. They taught us that we had to occupy the streets to make our voices heard, but also to take up all these figures, symbols that they generated for the historical memory, that we had to make them more visible. I feel a very strong social responsibility to this city because, not so much because I have a sense of belonging somewhere, but because my family, my friends, my sisters are here. I didn't ask to be born in Juarez, but here I am, and I could leave. However, I believe you're part of the construction of this world, and I learned that I can only change the world by fighting, even if it's my own little world. It's, it's very frustrating to live in the city. It's tiring, but I decided I had two choices. I either give up and decide to put the blindfold back on to avoid seeing the problem that's there, or I take it off and resist and fight with all the life I have in me. And that's what I've decided to do. Part of the strength we also have is that this is not a fight for my colleagues or my friends. It's a fight for me too. It's a fight for myself because I'm a woman. I think these colleagues, the ones present here and the ones missing, have something in common. We lost our fear. And we understand that in order to live, we die. We're not afraid to die. But on our way, we're going to write the history of this city. On the day we interview the women of Hijas de Sumaquilera Madre in the basement of a parking garage in Ciudad Juarez, the members of the collective arrived with masks that looked like a cross between a hijab and a lucha libre mask. Their colleague, Isabel Cabanillas, was murdered in January 2020, just a few weeks before our team touched down in Juarez. We filmed all these podcast interviews for a documentary series that will be released this year. So the collective needed to be sure their identities would stay hidden from the same people who had murdered their friend Isabel. The story you have just heard is true, but its final chapters are still being written. The parents of murder and disappeared women like Norma Andrade and José Luis Castillo still search for justice for their daughters. Activists like Uni Unida and Hijas de Sumaquilera Madre 
are still fighting to end the femicides and spread the stories of their murdered colleagues. And other activists and groups across Mexico are still protesting the problem of machismo and their government's failure to stop the murder and abduction of women. In March of 2020, thousands of women across Mexico went on a general strike to protest the country's femicide epidemic. They called this women's strike Un Día Sin Nosotras, a day without us. Tens of thousands of women took to the streets to demand an end to femicides. They staged presentations and performances They sang feminist chants, and most importantly, they embraced, urged one another on, and lifted themselves up. As I sit here in exile, listening with you to those recordings of the women's strike, quarantine in my home during this historic COVID-19 lockdown, It reminds me once again how oddly resilient we Mexicans are. Like the earthquake two years ago in my hometown of Mexico City, which leveled buildings but could not shake the resolve of Chilangos who pulled together in the aftermath of tragedy. When we are confronted with the choice between life or death, justice or impunity, most of us, will choose life and justice above all. For some women in Mexico, like Norma Andrade or Isabel Cabanillas, that choice of life and justice has exposed them to deadly violence from powerful forces who want to keep them silent at any cost, like the same criminals who tried to silence me. They have tried to suppress our voices, They have tried to break us. They have even tried to put us under the ground. But I know with all my heart that we must go on, even when it feels like we are all alone, that we can't go on. Together, as women and as Mexicans, we will go on. The Red Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vasquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendia recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was Rene Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juarez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. 
Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marván at Marván Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinosa Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.